Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Brian Cumberland of Alvarez & Marsal, one of the leading advisory firms in restructuring according to DebtWire's restructuring database. They've got over 50 engagements this year alone. He's a managing director with the firm and the leader of its restructuring compensation practice. At Alvarez, Brian's work runs the gamut of complex comp issues, including stock options, deferred comp, key employee incentive and retention programs, and more. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. So let's just launch right in with uh, first topic is let's talk about you a little bit. I'd love to hear about kind of your path into the restructuring industry and kind of what your reasons for were getting into this type of work. Well, my background is I received a BBA from the University of Texas. And I also received a JD and a, an advanced law degree, an LLM in taxation. I began my career at KPMG, and then they asked me to move to the Washington National Office in DC. And then eventually I was transferred to Dallas and became partner and then partner in charge of the comp and benefits practice. So at KPMG, I was partner in charge there, and I was there for 16 years, always doing executive compensation. Perfect. So how do you end up shifting to Alvarez from there? Why Alvarez? Yeah, there was an opportunity to join A&M and head up their comp and benefits practice. The enticing thing about it was that Congress just changed the bankruptcy rules on bankruptcy compensation. And being that A&M is known as the restructuring firm, I thought it was a great opportunity for me and my team to transition from KPMG to A&M. It worked out very nicely because Shortly after we joined in 2006, we hit the financial crisis and we were involved in some of the largest bankruptcies like Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual. And since then, we've been involved in most of the larger bankruptcies in the energy space, the retail space, and also recently the, the CyberCoin cases. We've developed one of the most comprehensive databases on restructuring. So this is getting a good untried for us to work with um, our clients and helping them through a restructuring process. You know, the more I get into this game, it seems like Lehman just pops up again and again, but I guess that's what happens when you're the largest the largest case ever, right? That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah, it lasted 10 years. You said you, you've basically said you've pretty much always done executive compensation and comp work. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to like that kind of subset of this whole industry? Because I think it's it's like tremendously important as restructuring goes, but it might not be, it can feel a little bit niche to some people. When I was working on my LLM in taxation, I was really focused at that time on ERISA law. And eventually I transitioned to executive comp. The reason I made the transition was because of my legal background and also my knowledge around tax and accounting, the treatment around executive compensation. And I really enjoyed working with the board and management and developing executive compensation programs. So I went kind of from doing a little bit of everything around comp and benefits to doing exclusively executive comp. And I've enjoyed that because of the interaction with boards and, and compensation committees. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, you have a lot of direct interface with leadership at companies and a pretty direct hand in keeping the ship upright. That's right. It's really important to keep the captains on the ship. Otherwise, if they jump, the crew will be uh, quick to follow. 
Exactly. And that right there is the line between the keep and the curb, right? That's right. I know that we're talking a lot about restructuring, but I want to start outside of court really quick. I would really love to hear how you approach evaluating compensation options and kind of develop these plans in companies that are trying to remain sustainable or avert going into chapter 11 or some other like more formal reorganization versus how you approach it when the company's already in trouble and the plan and you're really trying to keep everybody on the boat to continue the metaphor. The overall goal in any program, comp program, is to attract, retain, and motivate the executives and employees. And, and this is true whether it's a healthy company or a distressed company. The other constant is you have to always pay market-based compensation or competitive compensation program to recruit and retain talent. The difference between a healthy company and a distressed company is really just the type of delivery of the compensation program. And for an executive, most of their compensation, you know, generally 70-80% of it would be incentive comp that's long-term. So it would be equity that vests over a period of three to four years. So that's ownership of the company. When they become distressed company, uh, the compensation is generally equity is not going to be something that you're going to be handing out because it's not going to be worth anything. So you convert to an all cash based program and the performance periods are generally shorter. Instead of an annual program for a healthy company, you generally are looking at maybe quarterly performance metrics. Because what that achieves is, one, it gets the executives in a distressed situation laser focused on what are the goals and objectives. And we also find that quarterly performance programs are more retentive. Mm -hmm. In a distressed situation, the goal is to maximize the value of the state. In a healthy company, it's really to maximize the value of the company. It's a really interesting framing for that. I had never actually thought about it that way. Since there's so much focus on equity pre-distress, I'm curious if there's an element to the post-distress executive plans where you've got to kind of make up for the fact that they're, the equity that made up their prior incentive is losing value, if not valueless. Yeah, you have to transition from the equity into some cash-based program. And this is either because one... If the value of the company goes down so low, you would have to issue a ton of equity to get those executives to market-based compensation, and it would become very, very dilutive. Or it's it becomes very clear that equity is you know heading to be worthless. So granting you know additional equity isn't going to achieve the objectives or you know retaining the executives or motivating them because they can see on the horizon that it's going to be worthless. So. You know, this can occur to either when you're making this transition, it can be either because you're an out of court restructuring, you know, such as a balance sheet restructuring or in bankruptcy. So in either situation, you're going to be converting from equity to some type of cash based program. Absolutely. When the firm is engaged with a company long term, like you don't get brought on board just for the distressed cycle. At what point do you decide you have to shift strategies? Like, is it when you enter a forbearance period, when they miss an interest payment, when do you start thinking about like, okay, it's time to make that change as if we're about to enter like a tough place? Yeah. You know, a lot of times you don't know which path you're going to hit. You know, is it going to be just a balance sheet restructuring or um, a, actually a bankruptcy filing? But you want to change your program as soon as possible. And, and the reason for that is you, you don't want to continue granting equity when everybody knows it's going to be worthless. So mm -hmm. it's when you can see on the horizon that 
you know, the ship is going to go down or we need to, to do something different, such as the balance sheet restructuring. Because even during a balance sheet restructuring, the equity generally will be worthless. So as soon as possible is really the answer. Yeah, I can imagine that there's not much incentive to something that everyone has little hope for. Moving into the restructuring period kind of fully here, can you tell us a little bit about how we've talked about the differences between healthy versus distressed company compensation? Can you tell us about how you how you approach analyzing the existing compensation packages and how you move that into like, okay, here's how we here's exactly how we develop the program while we're distressed, just like the the foundation of the construction, I guess. Sure. The first thing to and the first step to determine is one is who is an insider um, as defined under the bankruptcy code, because insiders have special rules that apply to them. And I'll go through what those rules are. But generally, an insider is going to be anybody that is an officer, director or somebody in control of the company. And we work closely with legal and making that determination because it is a legal determination on and who is an insider. But once you decide, you know, the population of your employees that are insiders and non-insiders, the rules that apply to insiders are really two big picture rules that apply. The first rule is that the insiders cannot receive retention payments while in bankruptcy. So this used to be done prior to 2005, where they would receive retention payments. But this this was the change with the bankruptcy code that changed in 2005. So you can't receive retention payments during bankruptcy. The second change was that severance to insiders is either not allowed or it's severely limited in bankruptcy because they looked at severance as being just another form of retention. You stick around, you're going to get paid. So the first step is really looking at um, the insiders and then understanding these two rules. The other element that I think a lot of people think about when it comes to bonus plans encompassing both for, uh, both versions, for lack of a better broad term, is that I think that they can kind of be viewed by outsiders to the restructuring industry and also to a degree judges as kind of a touchy thing, especially when we're talking about insiders. This also goes to the line that we've ta- been talking about between insiders and non-insiders. But how do you balance the argument for the necessity of a bonus program with the fact that money and every dollar out the door in re- when we're talking about chapter 11 or restructuring is really tight and you've got to really really defend what can sometimes be millions of dollars going to to previously very well compensated members of the team one of the goals and objectives in any bankruptcy is making sure that we maximize the value of the estate and sometimes it costs money to maximize the value because if you don't pay market based compensation to the executives and the executives leave it's extremely difficult to hire talented executives into the company to actually replace them. So if you can't hire an executive in, which is almost impossible, you have to hire consultants. And the consultants are going to be generally more expensive than the executives that you lost. So it's very important that you lock down um, the executives. And the, the important thing is you got to decide how do we do that? How do we lock them down and make sure that they're going to maximize the value of the state. So it's either going to be that you're going to put in some type of retention program for the executives and employees, or you're going to put in some type of incentive program, or you might do a combination of retention and incentive program. But if it's to retain the executives, now I previously mentioned that you can't 
pay retention bonuses to an insider while you're in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So the alternative is that while you want to comply with the bankruptcy rules, it's to do what's known as a prepaid or retention bonus prior to a filing. And that, that retention bonus would be paid before filing and it would be subject to a clawback. So if the executive leaves, it would have to be paid back. And this has become, over the last five or six years, a very common mechanism or tool that's used to retain the executives. However, I always advise the board that this will be picked up in the news because it makes big headlines that we paid our executives before filing. But it's important to do that, again, because we got to retain them. So that's if you decide that you got to do a retention bonus. If you decide that we really want to lock them down by incentivizing them, then the company or the board has really two options. The first option would be to do a prepaid incentive program that would be set to a clawback if the performance is not achieved. So it's very similar to the retention, but it's just performance-based. The advantage of this type of program would be that you don't have to go through the bankruptcy courts to get it approved. So that's one way to do an incentive program. The other way is to put in your typical key program. So key employee incentive program. If you put in this type of program, it's something that the court will have to approve. And the disadvantage of going down this route is all the other stakeholders will weigh in and they're generally going to challenge the amounts. They're going to challenge the performance metrics and they're going to challenge the level that the performance metrics need to hit to have achieved um, to have the achievement of the payouts. So it becomes very contentious and also time consuming and expensive for the estate. Yeah. And I'm glad that you touched on targets because that's something I really would like to ask about when we're talking about keeps the incentive programs, which is how do you go about constructing, constructing those targets because they have to be, you know, challenging, but also achievable to be truly incentivizing. Say you have a case where the company is going to pursue a sale and you have the challenge of deciding at what dollar amount do they earn anything and then what level the tier two comes on. Say if they overachieve by $10 million, they get X amount. What goes into those calculations and picking what level at which is like achievable, but not too easy? You have to figure out what path you're going down. And you mentioned the sales path. So there's either a sales path or there's a, a restructuring where you're actually going to emerge from bankruptcy. Right. And the type of performance metrics that you utilize would be different under each scenario. But if you're going down the sales path, the, the most common metric that's used is going to be making sure that you maximize the sales proceeds. And what you'll do is you'll set it up. As you mentioned, it has to be whatever you put in place, it has to be a stretch. It can't be a layup. If it's right. a layup, the courts are going to look at it as just a, another retention bonus. So they make sure that it's um, a stretch. So you got to come up with what is the threshold that has to be hit in order for any dollars to get paid out. And it, you might say, you know, at I'll make up a number, 10 million, we're going to pay 1% of the sales proceeds to the executives. And if you hit target and you hit, let's say, 15 million, you get paid one and a half percent over the 15 million. So this is kind of a, a typical program that would be put in place. And you have to have somebody that's actually going to be prepared to testify in court 
in that example that the 10 million is a stretch, that it's not a layup. And they'll bring me in to testify to make sure that the amounts are reasonable, the compensation amounts are reasonable. And to do that, I generally testify on, on three different reasonable comp lenses. The first being that you look at year over year compensation, you generally see it being flat. So if you hit target, the amount that you're going to be paid is similar to what you got paid prior to a bankruptcy filing. So that's the first lens. The second lens you look at is the total direct compensation that you're going to get paid at target. Generally, you're going to look at it to see how does that compare if you were employed by a healthy company, your target compensation. So we benchmark it to healthy companies. And the third comparison that we do is we look at it based on other bankruptcies as far as the amount that they are paid out. So under my example, the 1% at 10 million, or you know, if you hit threshold or, or target, you at 15 million, you get one and a half percent. We look at that to make sure that that's reasonable in amount, but also reasonable in the design. So that's how we kind of look at it to make sure it's it's gonna withstand the scrutiny of the courts and other stakeholders. Now, touching on uh, CURPS, the retention programs for non-insiders really quickly, kind of a similar question, which is they tend to be more based on, or the variables, I guess, tend to be more uh, timing, like how long exactly the employees need to stick around and when the payments happen and the amounts as typically as a percentage of their overall salary. So how do you go about setting those benchmarks? Like saying like, you know, the just below insiders, they get 30% of their salary and it comes in first payment on the day of the plan and the next payment a couple of days after the effective date, something like that. There's really two different types of retention programs that you see put in place. The first type of retention program might be just for the all the rank and file or the non-insiders, they're just converting their bonus program into a retention program mm -hmm. that we want to keep them locked down. So whatever percentage of salary they were getting before, they're going to get the same, but it's going to be in a, in a retention program instead of an incentive program. The other type of program, and this is really what we know as a CURP, right. you decide that you have to pay more than market or more than what they've historically made. And generally, you're going to see that the amounts are going to be, they're going to range between 25 to 40% of salary on an annualized basis. This is typically what we've seen in our database of, you know, you know, thousands of, of companies. Generally, it's 25 to 40%. And it's generally going to be paid over a period of time. One of the most common practices would be to pay it on a quarterly basis. So that it kind of seeks up with the incentive program that's being put in for the the inside. So you kind of marry it up so that it's on a quarterly basis. Other times you might see it just, you know, halfway through the case, half of it will be paid and upon emergence, the other half. So that's another design issue. Curbs generally are not prepaid. They're generally paid as you go through the bankruptcy court. And that's something that you have to go into the bankruptcy court to get them approved. And most of the time, most judges are going to be very sympathetic to the rank and file, making sure that they get paid a reasonable compensation. So it's it's very unusual that the curbs are not approved. 
Yeah, makes sense. Moving out of the specific plans, uh, you mentioned that AM has a really big, really big presence in energy, but you also talked about retail and you know, obviously you're all across the spaces. I'm curious how these compensation plans can, if they do at all, how they vary in structure between industries. Like if there are any key differences between a keeper of curb for an energy company versus a retail company. So big picture, you always want to pay market-based compensation. Um, so it really depends on each industry and some industries pay higher than other industries. Mm -hmm. The energy industry is, is one that generally pays higher. So that's compensation. So you just want to make sure you pay market-based comp. The other item is the, the metrics, which you alluded to. The metrics will always be different for different industries. You know, if it's an energy company that might be cost to get the oil out of the ground or the lease operating costs uh, might be something. But one of the most common metrics that will you'll see across all industries, if it's a performance-based program, is EBITDA. Because EBITDA is kind of gets both lines. It gets a, your revenue and also your cost cutting to get to your earnings before interest and taxes. So that's a measurement that's really common that you'll see that's approved in bankruptcy and utilized even just a regular restructuring. Right. That makes perfect sense. Well, Brian, it's been really great talking to you this afternoon. I'm all out of questions and I think we've all learned a lot, but thanks for taking the time to share your experiences and your thoughts with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks a lot to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. We look forward to seeing some of you at DebtWire's Restructuring Forum in Miami next week, where we are excited to have Alvarez and Marsal as both a sponsor and a panelist. I myself will be leading a discussion in the afternoon on distress in the real estate sector as well. And if you're visiting us in person, I encourage you to come say hello. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode of this show via Spotify or Apple and find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. We'll see you next time.